The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Good evening, everyone. Uh, this is Dr. Alan Fine, the podcast editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. And today we're going to be talking to Dr. Martha Billings, who's an assistant professor of medicine and one of the active members of the Sleep Center at the University of Washington. And we're going to be talking about some specific aspects of uh, continuous positive airway pressure and also hopefully get into some general uh, questions, basically uh, things I want to know. I do sleep medicine in a variety of uh, settings, and uh, I think there are some differences based on uh, population and uh, I just wanted to see what Dr. Billings thinks. So, good evening, Dr. Billings. Thank you so much for having me today. Okay, whoops. And uh, the first question I wanted to ask you was, uh, where do you think we are with sleep medicine in uh, general and the use of of CPAP? Do you think uh, it's been an effective therapy. What's your opinion about the state of CPAP? Uh, The state of CPAP. I think that uh, CPAP is extremely effective, but as we all know who practice sleep medicine, its use, its adherence to the therapy uh, limits its efficacy. So compliance or adherence tends to be uh, the big issue with CPAP. And there have been lots of advances made in CPAP devices and masks over the years that I've been practicing and uh, modes of delivery of the air pressure. And despite these changes, uh, we still have issues with adherence, perhaps less so than in the past, but still present. And this tends to limit the benefits in terms of influencing health outcomes, such as cardiovascular disease, as well as the benefits of cognition and um, energy level and reduction in motor vehicle collisions and things like that. So I think uh, the field has advanced, but um, we still are still not quite there yet. I uh, wanted to uh, bring up the. Uh, do you think CPAP is the uh, final answer? It seems like I, you know, it was introduced in the, I'm going to say, early '80s. And in in concept, it really hasn't changed much, and uh, that's something that, in a way, I'm I'm glad we've made these incremental changes. But uh, still, we're we're using uh, essentially the same therapy we uh, for I don't know it's probably going on uh, 40 years. So, um, what do you think the next step is? Better CPAP or uh, new technology or some kind of quantum uh, leap? I think it's probably incrementally is is better CPAP, but I think probably more individualized care, I think, is the wave of the future. I think identifying not only that they have sleep apnea, but the type of sleep apnea they have um, is important. So is it more 
an upper airway issue due to obesity? Is it more anatomical issue that can be corrected surgically? Is it an arousal issue? So I think sort of targeting therapy towards not just the raw numbers, but uh, the patient's physiology is important. And there have been, you know, newer modalities coming out, such as upper airway hypoglossal nerve stimulator, which is not yet ready for prime time, but maybe a newer way to go. But I, I do still have many patients that love their CPAP, won't sleep without it. So I think although it, the technology and the premise of the technology is, you know, 40 plus years old, I think that with the improvements in delivery, um, and there are some patients that were lovers of the therapy in the 1980s when we had very loud machines and clunky headgear and whatnot, but it does work. So I think I don't think we should give up on that mode just yet. And I think the newer ability to do, you know, night-to-night downloads and have the wireless access for the patients is also helping uh, patients use it more. So uh, you wrote an editorial on a, what I think is a very important paper from uh, University of Toronto by Ken Zerska on the effect of patient neighborhood income level on the purchase of continuous positive airway treatment among patients with sleep apnea. So I wonder if you could uh, describe this paper and what you think uh, our audience needs to take away from it. Certainly. So the authors were based in Canada, and so they had the advantage of universal health care coverage. And they looked at patients that were seen in their center over several-year period and followed them to see how many of them purchased CPAP. And they had this sort of uniform ability to collect that data since everyone got CPAP from the same, the same way. Um, and they looked at the association of their eventual purchase of the CPAP with the, where they were located in their neighborhood and the neighborhood income level. And they found an association, although that was attenuated after adjusting for confounders, but an association by neighborhood income level and willingness to accept. So that patients that were in a lower income neighborhood had a lower likelihood of, of accepting and purchasing CPAP. And so the, the message that I took home was that, you know, despite having really minimal costs with the, you know, universal healthcare cover system, there was this suggestion that, that neighborhood income and the patient's income likely reflects or may contribute to their ability to uh, utilize CPAP. And there was some co-pays that the patients may or may not have had, which were not able to be accounted for, so that may be something else contributing. But the fact that um, your neighborhood where you live as well as your own income may factor into your ability to use CPAP. And I think when I see patients that are from, you know, have less ability to pay for healthcare costs and devices, I do sort of factor that into my discussion about treatment options with them and as well as sort of other things going on in their lives and where they live, which may impact their ability to use CPAP on a regular basis. So I think that's sort of the take-home point for me is sort of factoring that into your discussion, the patient's background and where they're coming from and their ability to, to afford the, the treatment. Well, I, I will say I, I don't have evidence-based data, but my own observation is that neighborhood, background, language issues all factor into the ability to not only obtain, which probably in the United States with our 
variable health care coverage by region and uh, other factors by, by job does have a major impact in the ability to provide CPAP. So I, that's why I always wonder whether we're, we need some other kind of, of technology. Uh, people living in uh, shelters or uh, in group facilities are going to have a, a big problem using uh, this kind of therapy. So let me ask you about uh, how much compliance do you need to actually get a, a benefit? Or as you were talking about, is it in, totally individual? Um, I, well, you know, aggregate studies have found that people get more benefit with more use. It's sort of a linear relationship. There's no sort of uh, cutoff for when it's actually absolutely beneficial. But in general, you know, the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare use a cutoff of four hours, uh, which has been associated with less cardiovascular disease, such as hypertension and stroke and myocardial infarction and AFib. But, you know, other benefits such as sleepiness, quality of life, those sort of things tend to require even more CPAP use. So I tend to recommend that people use it as much as possible with a goal of at least six hours a night so that they can gain these other really important benefits for their day-to-day life, their energy level, their sleep quality, as well as the long-term health benefits. And let me ask you, what what do you do to... uh improve CPAP compliance. It's a, you know, such a big issue for everyone, both immediate and, and uh, more long-term. What do you recommend? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's certainly always a challenge, and I do think it, for the individual provider, I, I think it is definitely tailored to the patient. I try to sort of drill down to what individual barriers they may have, as well as their perceptions about CPAP. And I think when you first discuss the therapy, most patients who come into your sleep clinic kind of have an idea they might have a sleep problem, and some of them have heard about CPAP, but some of them have heard bad things about CPAP. So it's important to lay the foundation of expectations as well as, you know, how they perceive it will help them overall and sort of target it to their symptoms, um, such as poor sleep or daytime sleepiness, and maybe some of the other symptoms that they're not aware of that are linked with sleep apnea, such as mood and the ability to concentrate, um, sometimes attention deficit symptoms can mask as or be flagged as instead of actually having sleep apnea, ability to concentrate and learn for people that are students. Um, and then when you see them, it's important to see them early, uh, especially if they're having problems because there have been lots of studies showing the first week of use really determines long-term use. When, when do you see after a patient gets their uh, initial delivery of the equipment, when do you see them? Well, there's sort of the reality when we see them, which is usually we see them after about 30 days because of the Medicare rules. I don't know if that's necessarily the best time to see them. Medicare requires that you see them after 30 days of use before to authorize continued coverage. But I do think having some sort of maybe not be seen in person, but have a telephone or remote way of checking in with them, and a lot of the durable medical equipment companies offer that sort of uh, early feedback, which I think is is important, and I wish we had the ability to do that ourselves more effectively. But oftentimes, kind of identifying those early problems, such as mask fit or side effects from the CPAP, that you can make adjustments to their pressure or the mode or the type of mask 
or treat their nasal congestion, those sort of things can, can turn them around and enable them to start using it and have a better experience. But it, sometimes it, it, they just give up uh, and you haven't had the opportunity to help them in that crucial initial period. So uh, let me ask you about what do you do for the uh, patient who doesn't want to use CPAP after an initial month or six weeks? What alternatives do you provide? So if they're basically not willing to even reconsider it, which there's definitely a large proportion that are like that, um, I, I just kind of, I again tailor to the individual. So if there's somebody that's, you know, not overweight and have good dentition, then they may be a great candidate for a dental device. And that has been shown to be relatively effective for uh, moderate sleep apnea, especially that's worse while supine. If they are severely overweight, then sometimes bariatric surgery is an alternative. If there's also the hypoglossal nerve stimulator, which we don't yet refer people for, but may be an, an option. Um, and then I often recommend weight loss even without bariatric surgery, just through diet and exercise, pretty much to everyone, but especially in those Yeah, decline CPAP, as well as positional therapy, I think can be effective, in, again, in those people that have supine-related sleep apnea. But, you know, sometimes we, we go back and try CPAP again, um, kind of working through whatever it was that made them not want to try it again. Sometimes it's anxiety, sometimes it's insomnia with the device and, and offer, you know, possibly AIDS or um, sort of counseling, cognitive behavioral therapy to sort of work through claustrophobia, things like that, to kind of help them uh, try it again. Do you uh, think age becomes a barrier? We anecdotally have had difficulty getting, I'll say, very elderly patients who may even request it up front to maintain compliance. So, And even perhaps the issue of what the long-term benefits of CPAP in the very elderly might be questioned. So... But, but we we have seen that as a barrier, and uh, I'm not sure what to do about that and uh, how well it's been studied. It, because we're we're seeing, you know, people in their mid to late 80s, even 90s, requesting CPAP, or sometimes oh. family requesting mm -hmm. uh, CPAP. They qualify. They may have severe sleep apnea, but find it difficult to to maintain use of that type of therapy. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I do see some patients that come in that are similarly aged, and, you know, I've, it's had a variable experience with them. Some, I do agree that, you know, the benefit is really going to be in their quality of life at that point, especially in late 80s. Um, mm -hmm. the health benefits are probably not there, just, in percent, you know, years of life gain type thing. But um, I think, you know, if, if they're really having poor sleep quality and, and the CPAP helps them, I think it's a very reasonable thing. I think that's been shown to in very small studies, so it's still not absolutely proven, but that it may help sort of prevent cognitive decline and dementia, so maybe earlier intervention in people with you know, early stages of Alzheimer's may be useful. But certainly as people have more advanced age and more cognitive problems, it gets tougher. And if they resist, I, I don't, uh, it is harder to get, get them to use it, and I agree that it may not be worth it to, to the patient long-term if it's that frustrating for them. So right. I think uh, it's sort of weighing the, the benefit personally. So um, i I just like uh, to ask you if you have any other summary thoughts about where we are with CPAP and uh, what we should 
be doing it at this point. Uh, you know, as I said, I am frustrated by what what I would see as lack of uh, conceptual progress in dealing with uh, sleep apnea. I think probably in many patients, but certainly not all, CPAP is uh, effective. And so, w- what are your thoughts? Where where are we? Where should we be going? I think we're, yeah, I agree. I think we're kind of, so far we're stuck with CPAP as our best uh, option and there still is a, you know, this kind of negative perception of it and there is, you know, a significant proportion of the population of sleep apnea patients that don't tolerate it. And I do think the, the issues that the paper brought up of differences in the ability to use it and that I think have been understudied in patients that are minorities or low socioeconomic status are kind of under-addressed. And I think, you know, we know that patients that have live in these poor neighborhoods um, often have poor health in general, and I think their sleep may be a factor that we're ignoring without even having sleep apnea. They often have poor sleep just due to contextual factors within their neighborhood, life stressors, working two jobs, and just crowding issues. So I think paying attention to sleep in general, and when you see patients from backgrounds like that addressing their of their life, so their opportunity right, to sleep. Right. Do they get this is one of many yeah. health problems. Right, um, and there may be other things going on in their lives that are much more urgent and significant. Sleep seems like a small thing that's not a big deal, but um, you know, I do think it may factor into their to the increased risk of cardiovascular disease in, in these, this population, as well as, as you mentioned, uh, language issues and lower health literacy, self-efficacy. So I, I do think that what I took out of this paper and that it kind of brought, I thought brought attention to was that the issues in this population in terms of getting adequate treatment and access to care, even if it is identified, but getting them treated. Um, and if they don't accept CPAP, then being able to get them an alternative is even tougher because, you know, most mandibular advancement devices are not covered by insurance, um, so they're very expensive. And so there really aren't many options that they can afford besides maybe weight loss. So, and that, that's hard to do with, you know, access to healthy foods and ability to exercise in, in, in the neighborhood they live in. So uh, I think sort of public health measures and focusing on sleep are also critical. Yeah, it's, uh, it's even uh, difficult as I think about it to imagine that all the people that need uh, interventions in sleep are even being identified. The availability of any kind of uh, sleep testing home or in, in lab is probably way deficient compared to the number of people who are at risk. So I just want to thank you for a wonderful discussion, and uh, I would urge um, our readers to check on Dr. Billings and Dr. Kapoor's editorial in the January issue of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. And once again, a wonderful uh, discussion. And this is Dr. Alan Fine for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society, wishing you all good learning. Have a great evening.